Hey, I'm Jen, and I love horror movies. I'm Mikey. I'm dead inside, and I also love horror movies. And we really like to torture our friend Todd because he hates horror movies. That I do. And that's why they call me the horror virgin. <laughs> that's the only reason we call him that. I'm not, no other reasons at all. None at all. Whatever. So every, <laughs> every week, we take him through the encyclopedia of horror, the good, the bad, the ridiculously Jack Frosts. <laughs> and then we make fun of it, more or less. Or explain its deceptive feminism. Oh. Yeah, exactly. That's what I do. That's my thing. <laughs> and I'm the funny one. <laughs> Our episodes drop on Monday, so check us out. Welcome to I Spit On Your Podcast, a monthly horror brought to you by the Spinsters of Horror. This is a time once a month where Jess puts down her bloody knitting needles and Kelly steps away from the TV to discuss horror movies and sometimes other horror mediums with thoughtful analysis, research, and passion. It's Women in Horror Month. Well, I guess it's the, the end of Women in Horror Month. <laughs> uh, on this episode, we'll be discussing death and grief in horror and society, how horror helps us grieve, and even talk a little bit about pet death. The films we will be discussing are Mary Lambert's Pet Cemetery 1 and 2. So why did we choose these films, Kelly? Well, Jess and I had a, a long conversation about what we should do for this episode because the the amount of material is quite huge. Um, but I adore Pet Cemetery 1, and I thought it would be fun to just showcase Mary Lambert's you know, work in horror, which is Pet Cemetery 1 and 2. Yeah, it was definitely an interesting conversation that we had when we thought about, you know, Women in Horror Month. What do we want to showcase? What do we want to talk about? Because there's so many different themes that we could have approached this month. There's so many different movies, so many different people we could have, like, focused on. But, yeah, we decided to focus on Mary Lambert's films, Pet Cemetery 1 and 2, because they address some really interesting topics about how people deal with death and grief in horror. But it's particularly from it, really interesting to see it coming from a director and having a very feminine perspective about death and horror and grief. And as Kelly and I has already mentioned, we're going to also talk too about the idea of how people handle pet death and how it's seen in films as well. So to begin our conversation about this, we're going to talk a little bit in context about death and grief in society and how do we handle it. And what's really been interesting in doing this research is that you don't really think about death until you actually have to think about death. And I know that's a weird thing to say, but I know when I was doing my research about how we handle death in society, it was really interesting to see how culturally we've changed over the years to how we are, are approaching death and how we view death and how we have conversations about it. And it was in the past when we died, we died at home We were always, and we were surrounded by loved ones. Our bodies were usually prepared by our family members and by the whole community. 
but in our current western structure it's not like that anymore if you die in a house people are fucking creeped out about that you <laughs> you are, are you're meant to die in a hospital bed that seems natural to us we die in a hospital bed our body is then shipped down to uh, professional strangers to prepare it prepare it in a morgue to get it ready for a funeral and it's all done behind closed doors and your loved ones are not involved whatsoever except to make sure that the right flowers are chosen the casket's done and they pay the money to see it all happen and that's really has made death and grief in our society a very taboo topic to talk about and you can see it when you talk to people about someone who had died and you know if they if someone says like my grandmother or my father passed away and you're just like every, instantly people become really uncomfortable and it's considered a very morbid topic to talk about death and people typically like to steer clear of it especially too in our Western society where, like I said, back in the day, death was a very normal, it was a very normal introduced part of life. Like when you died, you everyone was aware that someone had died, but now it's like, it's very medicalized. When someone dies, it's seen as a failure. It's not seen as a natural aspect of life anymore because people are now dying in hospitals. They're dying in an old age homes. They're cut off from their loved ones. And a lot of times too, people in the medical profession feel like they failed in some way, shape or form when uh, a person dies or when an animal dies. They think of how could I have changed what could I have done to make things better and even then like sometimes uh, people the loved ones of those people who have passed away blame people in the medical profession for what could you have done to change this and so death is not seen as something that's very well accepted in American society we're really focused on how can we avoid death we're always obsessing about immortality with like anti-aging creams you know cryogenic cryogenics freezing there's actually been some scientific stuff about freezing and storing body parts over time people always being obsessed about leaving a legacy and making sure that even if they do die something greater or bigger about them is better and always kept into the world we typically tend to like to use a lot of euphemisms when we describe death. Um, we like to say that people are just kind of moved on to another life or another journey. But when we are dying, we are separated from the rest of society and we leave it only to people who are cultured in death or experienced in death to really deal with it. However, when we have this one side of American culture that likes to avoid talking about death and its experience, we actually do have Americans who are obsessed with death and anything death related. And it's actually a phenomenon and it becomes regularly appears in various forms in entertainment and media. And we see a lot of our mass media as a primary source of information when it comes to death and dying. In the cinema, what they what typically comes out is thanatological, which is death lore, which is the scientific study of death and loss, and is a very popular element in cinema, and it's very seen very popular in Western films, horror, uh, war films, and a lot of horror films. And why do we, you know, like to talk about death and horror films? Well, it's because it's such a, has a morbid focus, and the young are so fascinated with the concept of death that we see a lot in our films was the zombie films and a lot of slasher films. But while there are people who are still fascinated by the concept of death, it actually scares a lot of people who don't like death. Definitely. Yeah, you made some really wonderful points about how absolutely disconnected we have now become when it comes to, to death. You, you know, they used to, yes, deal with it within the home. There was even death photography. So they were so comfortable and accepting of it that it was just so vastly different than what it is now. It's very, very bizarre to me, actually, how how we deal with all of this and, you know, embalm people and keep them around for seven or more days and have all of these events surrounding it. It's, it's trying to prolong life with, uh, you know, with death being an inevitable thing. Yeah. Ugh. 
Uh, so death anxiety and fear of death. So there's a gentleman named Stephen Diamond. He has a PhD. He's a clinical and forensic psychologist. So he wrote a variety of articles on death and fear of death. And he wrote this really great one about death anxiety. So what is death anxiety? So death anxiety can be actually understood as a self's will to continue to survive, to persevere, to prosper, thrive and multiply in a world which makes this difficult and finally impossible, right? Uh, the constant threat uh, posed by just existing um, and continuing on with life, uh, you know, the perception of life's fragility and its inherent tenuous and ultimate impermanent transitionary nature and that is what brings about death anxiety. You know, it's that great deep unknown that we as human beings are incredibly afraid of. Just touched a bit on this with regards to, you know, the scientific causes of death. We always want to have some kind of explanation, you know, well, what happened? What's going on? You know, what was there? What could we have done to prolong this person's life? You know, just we're kind of fighting the inevitable here, but we want to prolong life as much as possible. So we refuse to accept that death is actually just a, f a fact of absolute life, right? It happens every day. It's going to happen to all of us in, and it can happen in a variety of different ways. Either way, the cause of death it could be natural or unnatural, accident, illness, old age, whatever. Our need to explain it seems to be the same. Accidental is self-induced, secondary to something else, like what actually happened. It's so difficult to us to fully accept that these people are gone and we want to know what caused it. I know that I would want to know as a medical person that is something I want to know all the time. Like, well, what's wrong with you? Like, if it's happening with my dad, I'm like, well, what are your symptoms? What does the doctor say? Like, what is actually going on in your body, your human body right now? I'm so clinical about it. But, you know, we really want to know and we can make informed decisions on ourselves and everybody else. Um, so, you know, anytime that someone that we're familiar with, you know, a close friend, family member, somebody just generally in our life or a celebrity passes away, we're reminded maybe subconsciously again, just the grim reality of death uh, and our own personal mortality. And again, something that we really have a hard time accepting. You mentioned, the, you know, anti-aging creams. You want to absolutely, we're fighting to slow the progression of aging because when you age and getting close to death and God forbid that's happening, you know what I mean? So I use anti-aging lotion, it's fine. <laughs> It's more of an, an aesthetic thing. No, but. don't you know we're vegans? We're going to live forever, hon. Like. Oh, that's true. I'm going to be 120. Yeah. For sure. <laughs> right. So witnessing or learning, you know, the death of, yeah, going back to a celebrity or a family member, somebody like a teacher from high school. That's been happening now that I'm almost 36. I'm having teachers from my, you know, my grade school, elementary school, high school. They're dying. And we just begin to think, we're like, wow, we knew them at such a, you know, prime point in their life. And then again, it comes back on to us. And then we get that kind of that, it triggers our repressed death anxiety, like this uh, psychologist was mentioning. And we're afraid of what's going to happen to us. Are we next? <laughs> so it's not nearly the dread of the physical and emotional suffering that can come from dying, but that dread of that presumed nothingness that comes with it. We can't comprehend it. And it's Terrifying. Again, coming back to that fear of the unknown. We also have that anticipatory anxiety of loss. So loss of consciousness, the loss of our loved ones. 
just the loss of being alive, loss of meaning. So we get so existential about it as humans. Sometimes I feel like we're too smart for our own good, you know, and just, just gotta let it happen. So I want to bring, broach the subject to you, Jess, since you are more spiritual, mystical person. <laughs> mystical how, person. How do you, I love the word mystical. How do you feel about death? And do you fear it? Do you have, I'm just, because I'm so clinical about everything in life and being a medical professional, might have different thoughts on it. I feel like I'm like a mix between whereas I don't fear death because I know that it is an inevitable part of life. And in my mind, it's like, you know, moving us, we're able to move to the next stage of our journey. So in terms of being a mystical or more spiritual person, I believe that, and as I've expressed in uh, previous podcasts, that I believe that there's more to this world that meets the eye. And I don't believe that this that our physical existence is purely the only thing. And I, I do feel and I do believe that once we pass we pass on uh we 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 just we, we put me on the spot kelly <laughs> <laughs> that's what i like to do uh that whatever essence that we believe that we are a part of we just we kind of return to that and sometimes i like to think that maybe you know we may come back in another shape or form or we may not we just decide like fuck this realm i'm gonna go to something different but i don't fear death however I am typically saddened when it does happen or when something or when someone close to me close to me has died because it, it is losing that, you know, that physical constant reminder of that person there. But then at the same time, too, I I have felt on many occasions that I'm not truly ever alone and that those people who have passed away who have been close to me have in some way kind of, you know, I've always felt that they are not truly gone. And I also feel that when it comes to death like i know in terms of like when someone's sick and they're you know and they're pretty much gonna die and they know it i ha- i am a firm believer that if someone feels like it's their time to go to kind of to let them go um or that you know no matter how hard you try to and i know this was like this was like a controversial subject i got into with my with my partner the other day about you know kind of like Uh, euthanasia and that whole concept of you know when you're getting older and if you decide I want to go I should be allowed to go like I don't but other people will like say like get involved and say like no we don't want you to die because of this this and this and this and they're like well no I want to die (laughs) like because they're because those people are uncomfortable with the idea of you're no longer being a presence in their life when you're like no I feel like I've lived my life it was a good life you know so maybe there may be a cure that comes for this illness later on but I think that for me, I feel like death should not be something that should be feared, but in a way embraced, but at the same time too, I also carry sadness around it. And just, but I always try to remember that in some way, shape or form, those people I love come back to me in another, in another way. So yeah, there's my, there's my weirds on that. Since I see death quite regularly, um, as a medical professional, I keep saying medical professional, people don't know, I'm a vet tech, so I, I see pet death all the time and I have minimal, very minimal experience with human death, but I see them very much similarly in the sense that I have seen a lot of, honestly, a lot of dead bodies. And I just think, I don't think too much about where this quote unquote, you know, the essence or the soul as, you know, some people might call it. It's an interesting, definitely an interesting subject as to what necessarily happens, but I really, and I think it's beyond anything we could even comprehend. Which is why I love Flatliners so much, the movie from the 90s, because they play around with death. And I was like, though there's like supernatural elements to it, and I don't think that's what actually happens, but we don't know and we never will know, you know what I mean? And 
But I definitely don't fear it. The only thing that I worry about all the time is what would happen to my cats when I died. <laughs> oh, God. Yes, that is that is my fear, too. Um, because who's going to take care of them as Ex- good exactly. as I take care Exactly. Like, I don't right? really care about myself in that way. I just really want them to be taken care of, which I think comes down to, you know, maybe even my parents, you know, as they age, thinking about what's going to happen to their family, though. I mean, we're all old my brother and I are older so like we can totally take care of ourselves so um but you know come there's a lot of I think they, they might have some of that anticipatory uh fear of kind of like what's going to happen with all of their pets and their house and everything so really in the end I think just very clinically that the body gives out and we die and then that's that the end and I don't feel like I need any kind of reassurance of anything afterwards because I think life's pretty damn awesome as it is, and I don't need anything else beyond that. So the first film we're going to get into and talk about is Pet Cemetery. What is this place? I brought you here to bury Alan's cat. Daddy, is church all right? Why, Judge? I have no reason. I dreamed he got hit by a car, and you and Mr. Crandall buried him in the pet cemetery. What did we do tonight, Judge? What we did, Lois, was a secret. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Has anyone ever buried a person up there? May the Lord make his face to shine upon you. You're thinking thoughts. That's not photo. Daddy's gonna do something really bad. You're thinking of putting him up there. Don't deny the thought hadn't crossed your mind. Come back to me, Gage. Come back to us. Paramount Pictures presents Stephen King's all-time best-selling tale of horror. Pet Cemetery. So Pet Cemetery is a is in my top 10 horror films. It's a seminal film in my horror journey and horror history. I used to watch it all the time at my sleepovers when I used to have these epic sleepovers with all of my friends. Um, I revisit it every few years. I read the novel too when I was a teenager and I loved it. I haven't read it since, but I did enjoy it a lot. Um, So this movie is uh, actually an important one to my horror journey. Mm, Yeah, Um, I actually watch Pet Cemetery the first time uh, I was like two months ago when we did our 80s month challenge and you had me watch Pet Cemetery. I had December, always, yep. Yeah, December, month. yeah, 80s <laughs> month. So I had always heard about Pet Cemetery, and you couldn't have not growing up in my day and age where everyone talked about Stephen King and all the different films and stuff like that. But of course, I was scared because it was Stephen King and he did the film It. And what's <laughs> Pet Cemetery going to be like, you know, dying pets? And like, I had all these crazy things in my mind about this film. And then when I finally watched it, yeah. Yeah, there, there's still some crazy things I think about this film, but it was my first time seeing it. I enjoyed it. I'm so glad. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously I'm watching so... again for this podcast episode, too. Of course. So being a seminal film in my horror history, there's so many things that I enjoy about it. So many things. It's a very thought-provoking movie. I think it was really smartly made. I also thought it was really creepy as a kid, less so now. Um 
fucking Zelda. So <laughs> she horrified many kids. Oh my god. <laughs> because she's horrifying. horrifying. It's terrible, but she's absolutely horrifying. Sitting down in the room at the end of the movie when Rachel goes over the Judd's house, just like got her back to Rachel and turns around. She's like, never leave again. Never uh, leave again. Oh like, my god. Even now, like I can watch her now, but I cringe every time I look at her. She's so awful <laughs> in such a great way it has my favorite horror quote of all time well, sometimes that is better it's my favorite horror quote of all time <laughs> i love fred Gwynn so much in this yeah. movie oh god judd i just i just want to hug him and then it also contains my favorite um song in a horror film so the Ramones Pet Cemetery. I absolutely love it as soon as that movie ends that movie be sorry the movie ends and the song begins uh, I love it so so much I listen to that song pretty regularly nice <laughs> um, in terms of me like I enjoy this film the the film's overall tone is really well done and really you know bringing it really to me it does say it's like a, this is a Stephen King film you're going to be getting into some really interesting topics here and it's going there's going to be moments that scare you um I also love Judd I he was like just, he's just like the sweet old man that you just want to freaking hug whenever you see him because he's just so caring and concerning especially like that scene in the movie where he's talking to Lewis after Gage dies and he's just like I feel like I'm to blame for introducing you to the cemetery and now it's claiming your you know loved ones and I was like no you're not to blame you're just so caring and oh I want to hug you it's okay um but I'm gonna bring this point around to you is that one, they wouldn't know about that Micmac barrel ground if it wasn't for Judd, so I understand why it feels like it's his fault, but it also kind of is. Yeah. Why did you even bring it up? Why? Yeah. Why like, did like, you even do that? Uh, yeah. To carry the movie along. Yeah, clearly. <laughs> <laughs> and obviously, um, I, I, didn't, I didn't mention this, um, I was really excited when I saw uh, the woman who plays... Um, who plays uh, Rachel. She also plays Natasha Yar in Star Trek Next Generation. So I was like very excited to see her. But then I was also sad because I'm just like, oh, she's going to die because she dies in, <laughs> in TNG and it's really sad. And now she's oh. going to So I'm like, yep, she's going to die. There's <laughs> no way Natasha Yar is going to make it in. But it was really nice oh. to see her in the film again. And then, of course, Church. I love Church. <laughs> He's an adorable cat gray cat. So and, act- and it was funny watching this movie the second time around because... My, my big gray cat, Odin, is, like, sitting right up beside me. And, like, so, of course, it was like, oh, church. And then when he dies, I'm like, oh, Odin. I'm, like, hugging him, like, you're never leaving this apartment. <laughs> oh, boy. But, yeah. Anything you dislike about the film? There's a couple of things. Um, there's some, some of the effects at the end are kind of cheesy, but I kind of chalk that up to the time and probably the budget that they had. But, uh, like... Little Gage, who's obviously a doll, she, like <laughs> literally just falling out of the yeah, attic. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it makes me laugh. Uh, that so Ellie was played <sighs> by twins, and her acting was fucking, fucking atrocious. Oh so my god! Two girls with terrible acting skills. Get out of here. I hate it. Oh, that and that's on my list too. I'm just like, 
the the girl the daughter i'm like why couldn't you have died like gage was the cute one he was had like the cute little you know oh my god little things he would say like i don't normally get like all like oh the cute kid i'm like "Mm." and especially because he gets creepy later but like her i'm just like just just can can she die does she die i want her to die now right (laughs) that's a horrible thing to say but i want the child to die (laughs) she's not good some child actors can be so wonderful and she or them they are not um as a nitpicky thing, medical accuracies are important to me, though I understand in the world of film and television, it's not always going to be that way. But I have to say, and it's going to sound harsh, Gage would have been absolutely obliterated by that transport truck. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that would not have been any kind of funeral. That would have been a cremation. He would have been mush. And and he's perfectly intact. <laughs> At the end, there wouldn't have been a gauge. Yeah, they, they literally just, like, would have just been that shoe. They just show like a scar like across his face. Like it looked like it just like his head, like half his head got taken off. And it's actually interesting that you say that because yesterday when I was watching Pet Cemetery 2 and there's like the whole scene with like the vet and stuff like that taking blood, I'm just like, oh, Kelly would have been cringing watching all this. Like, <laughs> having the son hold up the dog's leg so he can get blood and blood spurts out. I'm like, where's this guy's gloves? What's happening? <laughs> anyway, that's for the second film. Though. But yeah, anything else you disliked? No. No. Uh, yeah. Well, for me, very quickly, same thing. Didn't care much for Ellie. Some of the dialogue was a little weird in the film. Didn't make a lot of sense. Some things ever said. And, of course, Anne Zelda. Just, duh. No, thank you. Oh, no, thank you, Anne Zelda. <laughs> so, Zelda is her sister, and you often say Anne Zelda, and I don't know why. Oh, probably because I'm thinking of, like, Sabrina. Oh. <laughs> the teenage oh. witch. And I think Zelda, and I think Anne Zelda for some reason. But technically, no, she would have been an aunt to Gage and Ellie. But, yeah, Zelda. But she's somebody's aunt. Yes, for She's sure. someone's aunt. She's someone's dead aunt. Ugh. Ugh, no, thank horrific, you. Zelda. Horrific dead aunt. Good lord. Uh. So, in Pet Cemetery, there are many deaths in different ways and different reactions to, to all of them, which I found really interesting about it. You know, that's really spooky, wonderful opening of the movie, you know, it has the, you know, the children talking over the pet cemetery and then the fucking death trap of a highway. There's a lot of foreshadowing and everything in this movie to to show you what's going to happen. You know, even in one of the initial scenes with uh, the creeds and they move into the house, you already have Gage just walking over to the highway here we go stupid child you know and and like oh yeah no this is a bad idea i don't have kids but i know that roads and kids and pets don't really go well together they're they don't know (laughs) well the first discussion about death and regarding death is when judd takes everybody to the pet cemetery and judd you know says to the kids i guess just to ellie that you know you need to learn about death sometime And why don't we just talk about it now? So Rachel, and she gets so incredibly defensive. She's like, why? Why do they have to learn about this now? And of course, we come to find out why Rachel is so intense about death. Because her experience with death for the first time was goddamn traumatic. Which, of course, we'll definitely talk about Zelda. Uh, (laughs) So that's kind of the the first experience about her. We see, you know, Judd's reaction and and, and attitudes towards death. Rachel's already is super intense and defensive. So afterwards, Ellie, you know, she's upset about going to the pet cemetery and she's super worried now that church is going to die. And of course we know that our pet, you know, church is going to die eventually, you know? And so Lewis is like, well, those are just the rules, you know? And Ellie says, you know, 
well, I guess God makes those rules. And, and I was like, she, maybe these religious undertones are due to her mom. It just does, it's not super clear about it, uh, but maybe that's a school thing that she, she was being taught about. Um, yeah. I wasn't well, really sure about that. It's interesting because it seemed like almost like the religious aspect was more like Lewis, the father, was more open to that religious aspect, whereas Rachel was just like, no, like, why are you kind of lying? Like, it doesn't work that way. Totally. And then uh, Church is going to get neutered because they think they think that's going to prevent him from going into the road. Thanks, Judd. That was bad. I could tell you that. They're going to go into the road anyway, so they want to cross the road. Uh, and Ellie is like desperately wanting Lewis to promise. He's like, he's going to be okay, right? And he hesitates because he's a doctor. He's very practical. And he understands that, you know, death is a part of life. Also in a super clinical sense. But of course, the mom, Rachel, she wants him to promise her that the cat's going to be okay. And then he does very, you know, much to his chagrin. Um, But, you know, her mom seems like she really just wants to protect her from experiencing death. You know, live, you know, want her to live in a more you know, shelter, kind of fantastical, wonderful world where death may not exist or she doesn't think she's ready and wants to shelter her from it. You know, it's inevitable. And again, coming back to her first experience with death, which obviously was pretty terrible. (laughs) And we come into, we have Pascal, who's really actually a pretty important character. And that that we see as Lewis's most recent experience with death. Um, and he ends up thinking that Pascal is haunting him due to medical neglect. Like there's this part where he seems really just exasperated and upset saying, you were dead when they brought you to me. And like, he couldn't do anything to save him. That poor man's like skull was half missing. So um, you see, even though he understands clinically death and everything, but he still has that guilt of, I tried to do my best for you as a doctor to prolong your life but it was inevitable then church dies (laughs) poor cat every time he scrapes him off that frost bitten ground i'm like so terrible also seen that in real life um and again i'll bring it back to judd he's like and he's saying no ellie is not ready to deal with the death of her pet now he's kind of starting to shelter even he's kind of going back onto that i'm not really sure why he wanted to do that because he was so just like yep Death is a part of life. This is the pet cemetery. My pet died. He's in here. But he's like, nope, she's not ready for this. So let's bury him in the Micmac Barrel Ground, <laughs> where the ground is sour. Um, that first shot of Church coming back when Lewis sees him back is so iconic and perfect. Probably scared the crap out of that cat to make him get all poofy and eyes back, like ears back and eyes up. <laughs> but uh, it was quite quite fantastic and you know pet death is a huge it's it's the catalyst for both of these movies which is why I want to talk about it at some point because it's so important because what we do with animals ends up being quite different than what we do with humans and of course their first idea is like well let's just put the pet in the ground and see what happens oh that works hmm well let's see what happens when we do humans you know (laughs) yes Zelda so that yeah death can also be a very convenient thing. And in that scenario, it was very convenient for that family to have, you know, the burden of Zelda, you know, be gone from from their family. Uh, And some people welcome death. So Missy, the housekeeper, which she commits suicide, which is its own, you know, different type of death, provides, you know, different type of discussion and fear and, you know, 
uh, and stuff like that with with the family. And Rachel's very upset. Like, you don't even, she's like, she took a Valium and she went to bed. You know, she just like can't even deal with all of this. She has, she struggles a lot with that. And if that was my first experience with death, I would be truly traumatized. Not only Zelda existing, but taking care of her and seeing her die and experiencing all of that, that's awful. Kenneth uh, Muir, he talks about in his book a little bit about cemetery and about how Mary Lambert, uh, she focuses really on what uh, a parent's worst fear is, and that is the death of a child. And she really likes to show how the specter of death hovers around this family, as and Kelly has, you know, addressed it in the various means of, you know, Zelda, Missy, church, um, Gage, you know, like it's just it, it is it's very heavy on this family the entire time. And as humans, we continue to ignore death until it's forced upon us, and we try to take whatever means necessary to avoid it or to make it retroactive to change it. So, my a lot of initial thoughts in watching this film, and Kelly, uh, you know, pointed on a couple of really good points as well. That I'm going to expand upon is, I think it's interesting how, when in the beginning of the film we see the the Creed family drive up to their new house and they're unloading the car and the kids are running out to go play and stuff like that. And it's interesting to see how Lewis and Rachel treat the world as it's inherently safe, that they don't have to pay attention to what's going on around them and their surroundings. They can just enjoy having a family time and getting into, getting into their new home and just enjoying themselves and not really thinking like, we are literally like, we just let our little toddler just kind of wander around in the front yard here type thing. And these these huge semi-trucks going by. Like, at first, I'm like, Lewis, when you went to go see this house, <laughs> did you not realize, like, did you not question anything about that or ask? Totally. It's right? like caught up in their own world. That's a wonderful point. Like, why, and they, why didn't he build a fence? What? Yeah, why isn't there not a fence? Why is there no fence? I've been like, perfect. This is a lovely neighborhood, lovely house. We're going to build a fence immediately. <laughs> yeah, well, exactly, and it's just it's interesting how parents and I, I clearly I'm not a parent, but people like to think that the, the world is safe. That inherently there are safe means that, and ways to be able to protect our loved ones and little ones from accident or death. But we kind of see that once again they do that again where. You know, Gage almost got ran to the road, and Judd would just happen to be there to pick him up in time. But they let it happen again when they're flying the kite, and they're all outside having a beautiful family picnic, and the kite's flying, and Gage is flying, and he drops the thing, and you know they already know that the kid is will wander off, and he starts wandering off, and Lewis is behind talking to the rest of them, and the you know they're all enjoying the time, and, and Gage is getting closer and closer to the road, and you're just like whoa 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 whoa. The world is not a safe place. Like You need to be on top of your guard all the time. And obviously, clearly, that place still plays into the rest of the film, whereas Lewis feels a lot of guilt. Like, if I just had made it on time, like, if he just hadn't tripped that moment when Gage Good went to the Lord. road, he wouldn't have died. So that's something I found really interesting in terms of watching this film and how the family, the parents themselves, are trying to like understand or wrap their head around the world. Like, well, how can we truly protect our children if the world is not a safe place and how can we and when and, de and death is always a part of it right like especially with like when missy dies you know she commits suicide because she has cancer in the stomach and they just can't handle that because it's like well missy was close to the young daughter and that was a tragic situation that no one truly understood why why would someone want to take their life when they could have had medical assistance when lewis offered help and that's an interesting uh, point whereas kelly had brought up like lewis is a doctor and it's interesting how watching it, seeing how uncomfortable he is about death. 
He's uncomfortable when he's brought into the pet cemetery by by, by Pascal. He just like he does not want to be around it. Like you said, he feels uh, like he couldn't control the situation. He couldn't fix the death of Victor, and so he we see we see this like this desperation and this fascination with death, and he also becomes very obsessed with it. And it's interesting how watching him go from seeing his kind of downfall like he tries to what am i trying to say he's he's a doctor he, he approaches death in a practical way but at the same time too he's also trying to control death and when we see him bring church back to life and then gage and then rachel he's like oh well i'm gonna use science to explain how the explain this unexplainable thing so if i bury rachel now the length of time doesn't matter it will it will make it better because she will still be herself because she literally just died and that's what's what wasn't uh what wasn't working the first time i love the characters of lewis uh, judd and rachel and how they all three of them represent uh, how various aspects of how americans fear death and how they talk about it and how they feel it's uh, very taboo and how so like lewis coming from a a very doctoral very practical sense with death but he also kind of still has a bit of like a spiritual element to it in the sense of when he talks with ellie you know tries to like understand like yeah well, you know god can make the changes or be a change in decisions and they're just kind of moving on to another another form um judd really in the sense like he fears death he feels like a death is a way of uh, lessening uh, learning a lesson but at the same time too though he also feels that if there's this ability to change uh, pa- change something we can also change that i also feel he's also very respectful in the sense of he tries to respect another culture's way of death and trying to educate uh lewis and Ra- uh, lewis about how the micmac would bury their own and this is what they believed and then rachel she like i said she represents a person who was experienced death as a child in a very traumatic way and then has this guilt that she carries with her because she actually wished wished death upon zelda and that's how she feels that she's kind of almost like a, a damaged person or a damned person because she despite someone else's uh, pain and suffering she wanted that person to die to end that pain and suffering but also to end her pain and suffering and that's where Zelda comes to represent to Rachel how disgusting death really is and how illness can really disfigure us and change us to be into like almost monsters that we can never even recognize them or ourselves and Rachel holds a lot of guilt about that I would have yeah I would have loved to have known what their relationship was before the spinal meningitis you know what I mean and of course that's never talked about but maybe they were really close and then like you were saying that disfigurement and she turns no no longer into a human being so she can disconnect herself from it and and that's you know perverse in its own way you know if you had a deep connection with somebody and now they're no longer themselves or you know like you're saying monstrous or inhuman um and she herself you know zelda probably was no longer feeling much like a human either just due to the disease itself so oh it's so traumatic and awful i'm sure yeah for sure (laughs) I would have loved to see more of their relationship for some reason. You know, that just would have been an interesting thing just to see. That would have been more upsetting than horrifying. Yeah, you know yeah I mean? exactly. But being a horror movie, let's just let's show the horrific things. <laughs> <laughs> let's give those children nightmares for the rest of their lives. Let the rest of everyone's lives. <laughs> Completely. Ugh. I'm really interested to see what they do with Zelda in the remake because... Zelda is such an iconic, horrifying character, so that will be interesting to see what they do with that. For sure. Um, 
Yeah, so back going back to death anxiety, which Ellie has an intense amount yeah. of. She has so much fear and almost premonition. Yeah. She's just like, I just want to see how church is doing. Like, obviously, I'm sure she would t- ask a better cat anyways, but always asking, like, you know, how's, you know, how's Gage? How are things going? She's like, I had a bad dream. You know, so she's she has an intense amount for a young child that's, really really too bad and they don't fully understand it as adults we don't fully understand it but we accept it more so than children um but she has so much uh, so much fear of it and then she becomes surrounded by it and no wonder why she becomes all kind of fucked up about it so really how one thinks about death and what happens after we die can influence significantly our you know a person's degree of anxiety about death or fear of death because what happens, and I mentioned this earlier, just that, you know, after death is pure speculation. We don't actually know. Um, but if we were able to provide some kind of insight, we would all feel a lot better about it. I love Judd's view of death. So he says, death is where the pain stops and the good memories begin. So he's very practical, not overly sentimental. He's very positive about it. And he totally understands that it's a part of life. It happens, you move on, and you're going to be sad, but... You go to that positive side of death is where you celebrate life and try not to wallow in your grief. Even if it's an accident or if it's old age, it's awful. But, you know, it is something that we cannot change. So we have to move on with our life. And, you know, we can use this fear of death if people have it, this anxiety to really live our best lives, you know, live in the present, love passionately, just enjoy our lives because we know that, you know, we're going to die. So I think that's kind of where where Judd's view of death is. And I really love that quote by him because it's, that is something that I struggled with whenever my pets died. I'm super damn sad about it. And it's hard to think so positively afterwards and eventually get to that point. But, you know, I I now over time do more believe in that, um, that we just have to think so much more positively about it. We talked about Gage's death for sure. Um, that the incident at the funeral is so upsetting. You know, Rachel's father, they don't, her parents don't like Lewis anyways. And of course it's going to make it worse when, you know, that accident with Gage happens. But of course, grief brings out incredibly strong emotions. People act irrationally and super emotionally, you know, hence Lewis's super intense guilt and grief. He wants to play God. He made this really great point about him being a doctor And a part of being a doctor is trying to control death, right? Where there is disease, we try to treat it. We try to prolong life. And I feel like this was a way for him to really have control and probably why he over, let's say, Rachel in this scenario or Judd, you know, even though he brought his pet back to life at one point a long time ago, but he knows how bad it is, right? Sometimes dead is better. Um, That Lewis just gets kind of out of control and now we can control death truly even though they come back super bad and super wrong and awful and vicious and murderous you know but he can truly control it now yep that's kind of like a doctor's wet dream i'm sure (laughs) some of it (laughs) i read this little little bit in this article it was called it shouldn't be a party kids it shouldn't be a party. Kids, Keds, and Death and Stephen King stand by me in Pet Cemetery. But there's this little note about, um, there's this emphasis of that tiny shoe. You know, we don't see anything. 
So you don't see any of these people necessarily die. It's all off screen. Um, so by emphasizing the tiny shoe, this which is a potent symbol of childhood, and obscuring the corpse, Pet Cemetery averts its gaze from death and fixates on the symbol of life. And we know that we bring these well, the church gauge and Rachel back to life. So I thought that was a neat little you know, aspect and insight into showing a shoe instead of like, yes, it's a terrible accident, but let's celebrate life instead. John Kenneth Muir, uh, he has a book, horror films of the 1980s, um, you know, talked about pet cemeteries. So the movie kind of, it asked us what we would do if we lost someone whom we love and what we would do to bring them back. What would be worse, the movie asks, facing death or the specter of a corrupted, perhaps evil fiction of death? Um, you know, we have incredible difficulties letting people go. We're never going to see them again. We hold on to that. And the road represents death. It kills Gage and Church. We can't control death. We can't control that highway unless we build a fence, but thinking more metaphorically. Um, and, you know, not even a doctor can, you know, prevent the, you know, stuff from happening. Uh, there's a really great quote in, uh, I read about Pet Cemetery as a whole. So it said, Pet Cemetery's way of approaching death makes it particularly effective and chilling. Death is a mystery, as the opening quote of the book tells us. And what's more terrifying than fear of the unknown? Yet Pet Cemetery is unique in its horror-based approach to death. In other horror films, death is not the worst thing that can happen to its protagonists. In slasher films, it's not the death that's really scary. It's the lead up to the death. As a character flees in terror, trying with all of his or her might to just hold on to life a little bit longer. When the death is at the hands of a maniac like Jason Voorhees or Freddy Krueger comes, it's almost a relief. The characters can stop fighting now and it's all over. Pet Cemetery posits that when it's when we start trying to hold on to life well after the release of death has come, that we truly slip into abject horror. Yeah, so Pet Cemetery really takes on and addresses all these ideas and these constants of death and how different people react to death. And it also brings up the concept of bereavement. So we have death, we see these different representations of death, and then how do people deal with grief? And we see that the film does this really good job of showing this really close family dynamic and how passionate both Lewis and Rachel are for each other. Even after having two children, they're just like, so excited to start this kind of like new life in this new town with him being like the doctor at this college and just everything's great. But it's not until that, you know, Missy kills herself and then Gage dies that death is all of a sudden at the forefront and we have to see how this family that this once very loving, very closely connected family has to now has to deal with death. And we see Lewis, who's trying to grasp it onto his faith, and then there's something greater, and that he, and then he even begins to really believe in that after Church's resurrection. Whereas we see Rachel wants to completely close herself off and distance herself from her husband, kind of like from her family a bit, because she just can't handle the death of these people that who are closer around her. And then, as Kelly said, mentioned like Gage's funeral. Yeah, really upsetting. All of a sudden, these emotions are coming out, and there's this anger, there's this fear, this resentment, and Rachel's father attacking Lewis, and the knocking down over of the of the of the coffin, and it's just it's all very upsetting to everyone around them. Just like those things come out, and this is what happens with bereavement: it is a state of loss, and it's usually associated with someone close to us who dies, but it can also be part of other losses, such as like decline in health or an end of a relationship. So typically, symptoms of bereavement are crying spells, trouble sleeping, loss of appetite, productivity changes. You know, you have anger towards someone or anyone that is associated with that loss. Um, there's guilt. There's a lot of the should have, could haves, and a lot of intense mood swings. 
And many times, a lot of these symptoms can last up to months or up to a year. And so typically, the causes of bereavement, we have Sears and obviously losing a family member. So when you lose a family member, is adding the stress of decisions to make. So the, fun the funeral, the finances, the commuting the death, to communicating the death to family members and even trying to explain it to young children. Uh, when it comes to losing a child, so the loss of a child is more devastating to adults and it can be emotionally overwhelming. And in a quote in the, in the Mental Health America, a child's death arouses an overwhelming sense of injustice for lost potential, unfulfilled dreams, and senseless suffering. Parents may even feel responsible for the child's death. They may also feel that they have lost a vital part of their own identity, which is interesting because we see this happen the same day that Gage is hit by the truck, you see Lewis in his kitchen with all the photo albums and all these pictures of Gage in front of him and he's trying to once again he, you know he's rem like reminding himself of everything he's lost in that in that one in that one moment and then we also bereave uh, pet death and with animals you know just as with children with with animals too we see animals represent to us unconditional love they provide companionship they provide total acceptance and even provide emotional support as we see some animals being in a lot of occasions used as like therapy animals for people who suffer from PTSD or some kind of traumatic uh, event. And people who experience pet death also experience people challenging them and their grief and their loss. And that, they're this, that there's this whole idea, well, it's not like a child, it's not like a real person, this is just an animal, you can get another one, and that ends up diminishing their grief. And this is something that Kelly and I, both as uh, cat mothers, as mother of uh, cats and a lover of animals, we feel uh, has a tendency to be problematic because it treats we see death in these films, we see the death of a pet treated very differently to the death of a child in Pet Cemetery. Yeah, I thought it was important for us to talk about pet versus people death in horror, but also because these movies, um, especially in Pet Cemetery too, Jess mentioned that she, I was sending, she was sending me messages as she was watching it yesterday, and like, but the animals, the kittens, and I was like, yeah, there's a lot of pet stuff. There's a lot of dead animals in Pet Cemetery 2. Number one, it's just two, right? So it's, um, I think it's, it's important. It just made a good point about how we, we treat human and pet death very differently. And however, um, about 85% or more people experience symptoms of grief when they lose a pet. And sometimes it's as potent as the loss of a human. So it is a really important aspect. And then these two movies, like I said, that's the catalyst for the narrative of these two movies. If we did not do that, if they did not do that to the dog and the cat in these movies, we would not have had them burying human beings in the, in the ground, right? To have them come back. You trial them out with pets and then all that works. So now we're gonna see what else we can do. Even though the animals came back not in the greatest state. And I'm sure smelly as all hell. And, ew, church stinks. I just thought that was funny. I'm like, oh, I'm sure he does. <laughs> I'm sure he does. And pet death's super relatable to us as spinsters. And uh, it's, it's a huge one, I think, for everyone. So what is huge in pet death and illness are feelings of guilt and uncertainty. And I'm already tearing up. So <laughs> this is great. Before Jess and I did this, I was like, one of us is going to cry. It's likely going to be me. <laughs> so we always, and I think a lot of, a lot of, there's a lot of similarities I'm sure between, because I don't have children. I don't know what it feels like, but 
children and pets are similar in the sense that when we lose pets and children, we lose that, that innocence. And we are there dependent upon us to make decisions for them and help them out medically. And we have to make all death all the decisions for the pets. I'm assuming you'd have to for children because they cannot, especially of Gage's age, let's say, they cannot verbalize, you know, their thoughts and feelings very well. Of course, if they're in pain, they can tell us. Um, and unfortunately, sometimes veterinary medicine isn't so clear cut. Medicine in itself doesn't always give us all the answers that we want to make these informed decisions for our children, for our pets, for people. You know, we think about what we could have done. Again, this comes back to death anxiety, what we could have done to prolong their life or prevent their death. And, and Jess brought this up as well, euthanasia is not really a thing in human medicine. I personally think it should be way bigger than it is. We allow human beings to suffer immeasurable amounts of pain and suffering until they just die. It's awful. It's awful. And we allow that to happen for so many, I know, emotionally complicated reasons, but it's inappropriate. For animals, so thankfully, we deal with it a lot better. We understand that euthanasia is a part of their lives and we have to make that decision for them. So that is a huge thing with pets because we actually have to choose when they die, which is awful um, and it's terrible, right? We have uh, coping with pet loss is infinitely complicated as, long, as well as with grief and loss of human beings. So human animal bonds, um, roles of pets, you know, that they play in the family system is quite varied and you can see two like two very different types in pet cemetery one and two you know pets can bring people together through illness loneliness or sometimes the glue that keeps people together keeps people communicating enriching their lives relieve the stresses of day-to-day -day life humans less so for us because animals don't judge us they don't criticize us we don't get into these complicated political emotional or religious conflicts with them it's unconditional love it's simple basic love you know um there's a quote that i found in the this article about human animal bonds is that exactly what jess says all too commonly grief for the loss of a pet is unacknowledged or trivialized which can complicate mourning you feel incredibly alone i think overall in grief you'd be you'd feel very very alone because even though people might be able to sympathize or empathize how you deal with it and how you go about it is all in your own and it's really un unfortunate. And some pets can serve as a crucial el element in a relationship structure. So if a pet dies, then that relationship could also falter, which I can relate to incredibly. Um, my last relationship, I had a deep, deep emotional bond with my cat Squishy and he died. And I said to my partner, I don't think you're going to be enough for me because you do not provide me with enough emotional connection and support as my cat did and we did not last too much longer after that so it kind of like pets can make you realize you know what's truly also going on in your life so horror filmmakers thank you very much for including animals in your films because they know that it's going to bring up the intensity and manipulate our emotions. It totally works. It does every time. <clears throat> oh my God, right? Yeah. So Pet Cemetery 2 just has an incredible <gasps> amount of... We're like, oh, we're kind of spooked and that's kind of weird and goofy. Oh, there's pets dying. No, it's no. like, what's even happening? It's a roller coaster oh. of emotions. Yeah. <laughs> but there are some movies where animals don't die, like Science of the Lambs. Good old Precious. She doesn't die. Yeah. 
And teeth. And teeth. <laughs> big old Rottweiler um, doesn't die. The cat just... in Aliens. Like, Ripley goes yeah, back for the cat. Jonesy. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> well, like, we're so fine with people dying. But the moment... <laughs> but pets, it's different. The, totally different. You watch a horror movie, the moment you see an animal on screen in a horror movie, you're like, that animal better not die or I'm done. <laughs> like, I will... We have... <laughs> We have very complicated feelings about human beings and human nature in itself, but we do not have complicated feelings about animals and pets because they are the best things in our lives. Yeah. So there's this website called uh, doesthedogdie.com and it tells you whether or not a dog dies in the movie. And people, of course, want to know this. So you could go in, type in John Wick, oopsies, the dog does die. So you can find out about these things uh, before even going into the movie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I do, yeah, when we talk about Pet Cemetery too, I'm definitely going to go into a little bit about the, the complicated relationship between Ellie and her cat and Drew and his dog, Sally. Yeah, so as Kelly was expressing in the terms when it comes to pet deaths versus people death, like when a child dies, like here's what people go through when a child dies. We have deeply complicated loss, ranges of emotions, guilt and feeling of unfairness are intense. You're grappling with the notion of how their death could have been prevented, feeling like you are being punished for a sin, for a past or traumatic experience. You question and parents questions all their beliefs. Everyone in the family deals with the loss differently. You know, there's typically sometimes a loss of intimacy between our relationships and stuff like that. And I think of it when I look through this list, I'm like, this is how people feel when a child dies. I'm just like, huh. I can relate to half of these things or maybe even more when my cat died in the sense of I feel these same things when an animal passes away. And I felt the same things uh, up to, I can't even imagine this, like but three, four years ago since Vi passed away and how upset, how upsetting that was knowing that she went through this traumatic uh, event in terms of trying to get her better and then to find out that she only had four months to a year to live and she didn't even last two weeks and I had to make the decision to let her go and I was really hard because she was a really major point in my life and really important and I feel like in a way she's come back to me and my other two cats uh, Alra and Zena and their personalities but I felt the same way and I felt like at the same time that people do do that. They trivialize animal death. Like I remember people being like, oh, you'll just get another cat. And I'm just like, that's not the same thing. You know, I like, I even took me like a good year to really truly get over her loss. And I still get teary eyed uh, when I think about it and miss her a great deal. And, and as Kelly talked about her cat, uh, Squishy, and I remember Squishy, he was the best little guy ever. He was such a sweetheart. And really important really important in Kelly's life and I think about my own cat Caesar and how I'm going to be like when he eventually goes I'm going to be a fucking mess because he's I'm visiting you you know that right oh yeah he is like he like Kelly said like you know you don't realize that the, the amount of unconditional love they get and like Caesar is Caesar is my man so any any of my partners who come into my life they know right from the very go it, it goes see it goes myself Caesar and anyone else <laughs> like, there's no question completely but it, but it and, that, and that's where I get such an emotional reaction is when I watch these films so when I watch Pet Cemetery one and two and I see how the use of the pets are being their deaths are being used as a catalyst to either teach the child to about the concept of death, so Ellie and Church, and then in Pet Cemetery 2, very controversial, using a pet's death to punish a child, which is, I've also heard of that happening, and it's so very fucking upsetting when that, when that happens, so. 
for this episode, we have a special guest opinion, and it's Jennifer from the wonderfully hilarious horror movie podcast called The Horror Virgin. So Jennifer is a podcaster, and she writes blog posts for The Horror Virgin on their website, horrorvirgin.com. She's a huge Stephen King fan and a mother to human children, so we reached out to her uh, because we thought that she might have a unique take on Pet Cemetery. So let's see what she has to say. Hey, ladies, this is Jennifer. This is my contribution. Did someone say ladies? Oh, geez, that's Todd. <laughs> I don't know why I didn't turn his mic it's off. So hard not to laugh. I control the mics. That's why you didn't. Mm-hmm. This is why you need me. <laughs> it is actually because <laughs> I don't have my own mics and I don't know how to do it. Yeah. Well, it's nice to meet you, ladies. <laughs> I'm going to walk away now. <laughs> ladies, I apologize. This is what I have to deal with. All right. I think I read Pet Cemetery for the first time in seventh or eighth grade and have since reread so many times that I've lost count. The movie terrified me and I slept with my lights on throughout high school. I'm sure there were other reasons, but the clearest thing I remember being scared of was church jumping on my bed. When I was 16, I was diagnosed with scoliosis. And while everything turned out okay, I immediately thought of Zelda and that I would die in the back room. Eventually, the book became a comfort to me because I knew the story and character so well, and it was a book I found myself coming back again and again when I couldn't get into anything else. I loved it for how scary it was, for how dark it was, for Judd and Pascal. I just loved everything about it. But after having kids, my interpretation of this story changed. Where before it was a creepy and dark story, I now find it truly horrifying. I see it as a story about the fear of death and the annihilation of a family, The fear of building connections and having children that we might not be able to protect. About the dangers of loving and the pain of letting go. I cry every time I watch the scene with Gage and the truck. The juxtaposition of the tiny helpless toddler staring at the giant speeding truck is just too much, and I can't help but see my own son in his place. We don't actually see Gage get hit, only the aftermath. I think Mary Lambert knew it would be too much and that what we would imagine would be so much worse, and any parent forced to witness that would likely block it out. And I think we can see an allusion to this with the baby pictures. It's a visual representation of the denial Lewis might want to dive into, a way for him to hold on to the happy of his family before it is torn apart. One criticism I often hear about this story is that it's unbelievable that Lewis would dig up his son and bury him in the Micmac burial ground. It's easy to say that from the safety of our couches, but the experience of bearing that amount of tragedy is probably very different. The death of my children is literally my worst nightmare. I've often thought about what I would do if it happened, and I think my mind would just snap. I can completely understand why Lewis does what he does. I wouldn't want to go on living anyway, so why not take the crazy chance that I could take it all back? If the worst thing I can possibly imagine has already happened, what do I have to lose? The easy answer is the rest of my family, but wouldn't they feel just as badly as I do? Wouldn't they want to take the risk as well? Ellie practically begs Lewis to take it all back, and this is his chance. I also think Lewis is just looking for something to do to fix it. He was the one who was in charge of watching Gage, and I know he feels responsible. Any attempt to fix his mistake, no matter how crazy, is better than nothing. And doing something always feels better than doing nothing. I imagine sitting around with nothing to do but mourn is crushing. Hatching this terrible plan at least gives him something to focus on. Some tiny bit of delusion that things will all go back to normal, that he can fix it. He takes that tiny hope and goes all in. 
And I think part of him just wants to see his son again, to hold him again, no matter how disturbing it is. And in the end, Lewis has to kill his son again, and it breaks my heart. We're so grateful and appreciative that Jennifer took the time out of her busy mom life and podcasting life to to send that to us. It was a really wonderful, heartwarming clip, and I'm glad that she was a part of it. So the next film we're going to talk about is Pet Cemetery 2. Hey, what are you doing? Getting things ready for mom. Mom is dead, Jeff. She doesn't have to be. Something strange. Now, I didn't think much about it until I saw him drag the body out of the coffin. Something ancient. Bury your own. Something evil. Was it your idea of a joke to send me blood from a dead animal? This dog is alive. Not this dog. Something terrifying is happening in Ludlow, Maine. Again. No! Pick up your family. Get the hell out of that town! Pet Cemetery 2. Jeff, honey. Father and I need to talk. Some stories just won't stay dead. Pet Cemetery 2, I saw that again around the same time. Well, it came out in 92, so I saw it in the 90s and I watched it a bunch because it's tonally such a different movie, the rock music, it's just a little bit cooler. I think you saw more of Mary Lambert's uh, music video history come through with Pet Cemetery 2, but I actually, when I, I watched a bunch and I loved it as a kid. Uh, so I watched it a bunch. Watching it now, I definitely didn't like it as much. But I watched. I I I actually haven't seen it in probably almost twenty years. There's a good span of time between now and the last time I actually watched it. Yeah. So this is my first time seeing Pet Cemetery too. Uh, watching it for this podcast, and I'll just literally sum up the things I liked and the things I disliked. I like the kittens, <laughs> and I dislike the kittens dying. <laughs> <laughs> I don't. <laughs> very, very upsetting. Uh, I have so much to say That's fair. about how they handled their pets in this film. It was very upsetting. Oh, like, who the fuck? So what fucking veterinarian lets his teenage son take a fucking newborn kitten to school with him? Who does that? <laughs> Who does that? No one. He probably what didn't kind of know. fucking vet are you, man? Like, you should know better. <laughs> Uh, oh, I know. It's highly, it's highly upsetting that just that like first scene where the bully takes the kitten. <gasps> I was like, she's not ha- she's not having a good time on the bike. She doesn't like it. And then she's in the cage. And I'm like, she doesn't like the cage. No, right? And, like the whole time I'm like sitting there, like, if that fucking bully does anything to that kitten, I swear to God, I swear yeah. to God, I'm shutting this movie off. Like, uh, anyway. That's funny. So, yeah. What are your likes and dislikes of this film? <laughs> that is a very simple likes and dislikes which is hilarious. I guess that's what stood out to you. Um, I always had a huge crush on Eddie Furlong, so anytime I see Eddie Furlong in the 90s movies, I love him. 
Um, there's definitely some nostalgia part of that. All the 90s rock music. And really, I really liked the first half of the movie. I think the second half of the movie goes off the rails. Oh, it does. And it does. <laughs> a lot of things that don't really make a lot of sense. Nope. Um, which makes it kind of a wacky movie. Um, definitely different in tone than the first movie. Has less to say overall about death and grief. But I found it pretty entertaining. It just kind of gets really weird at the end. Really weird. Yeah. Yeah, it does. Um, <laughs> like I said, I don't like. Like I said, I don't really have much to say uh, about this film because, like I said, in the beginning, it's interesting. You see this interesting impact of family dynamics and how they deal with death. Like you see, I can't remember the kid's name. It's like Rob, Rob, or something like that. I don't know. It's Jeff. 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 Okay, so Jeff in the movie, we see like his mother and father are separated. They're working and trying to get back together. He witnesses the horrific electrocution of his mother, and I'm like, oh wow, okay, that will be interesting to try to come back from that. And you know, and his father's a veterinarian, so he deals with death on a regular basis. So I was like, okay, this could be interesting. He's going to try and help them, try to maneuver how to deal with death of his mother. And how he resents his housekeeper because she's like, you know, thinking that she's like the mother's place. I'm like, okay, good setup for like a really good, interesting film. And then you get Drew, pardon me, you get Drew, who has his stepfather, Gus, who's abusive. And he's, you know, really abusive towards Drew. He ends up killing Zoe, Zowie, as like a means of punishment to, you know, to teach him a lesson and then you know he's abusive towards his wife Amanda who you can see eventually realize that she has a bit of a drinking problem well not really a drinking problem like she drinks to forget that she's in this really fucked up situation with this man that you know is fairly highly sexualized and has all these rabbits and you can tell that there's some kind of like connection between his like you know how he's how like you know how I'm gonna say this very crudely how horny he is and how he treats women in general but tries to act this way. So anyway, yeah, like you said, the movie starts off with these really good, interesting setups of things yeah. happening. And it's interesting that it's this time around, it's, it's children, you know, using the magic of the Micmac uh, funeral ground to bring back uh, the Zowie. And that was interesting, but I did not get, just like, like I said, why the fuck would they want to bring Gus back to life? All you had to do was like he got attacked by a wolf, run to the someone and someone would help yeah. him. Like you don't need to bring him back to life. I, if I had an abusive stepfather, I would not want to bring the fucker back to life. But okay, we're done. Like all right, accident is happening. I know. We're like thank God. Where's the death? The convenience of death there. Let's treat Gus as our Zelda and be like, oh God, great. Yeah. Probably just felt a lot of guilt, and I'm sure Drew thinks his mom likes him in some way, you know, and it's like her new husband and whatever and. There's a lot of things that didn't make a lot of sense, unfortunately. Um, but yeah, there's also a lot of a lot of deaths. There's definitely a lot more uh, animal death in it. I do. You're right. That first scene really sets up for something that might be quite fascinating. Um, so he ends up having so many nightmares about his mom, and he's having a hard time. So it seems like in the very short uh, bit that we see them interacting, that they have an incredibly deeply connected relationship where he doesn't have that with his dad um unfortunately and at their you know at their funeral you have paparazzi photographing photographing everything and just our such a reduced amount of respect for the family and this woman who died this in this tragic accident but we're also fascinated by death right especially celebrity deaths you know, starts making us think about our own mortality. We want to know exactly how they died, what's going on with their family. You know, it's really, really terrible. Um, 
What I found really interesting was that scene of her dying is immediately juxtaposed against so Chase's the dad. So in his clinic, there's a pet euthanasia. And I was like, I there's so much happening emotionally. There's a lot of it's definitely a roller coaster of feelings in this in this movie, but there's a pet euthanasia right afterwards. And, you know, he has Chase saying, they had a good life, you know, and which we say all the time to our pets, but maybe that was, you know, we could say the same for Renee, which is the mom. Um, I mean, her death was a terrible accident, but she lived an incredible life. It seemed to be, you know, a famous actress and um, is doing quite, quite well. So even uh, that's thinking positively. And we try to do that with our pets and try to do that with people. So let's just think she had a great life. It was just an interesting scene to put right after that. I was like, oh, God, now the dog's dying? <laughs> Please don't show me euthanasia. I see that enough in my life. God damn. Oh, uh, yeah, Gus. Gus is a slimy, slimy thing. But we do need the dog to get this movie going, right? Uh, that poor dog. <laughs> and that scene is, yes. like, heartbreaking when he gets shot and you see Drew out there, like, puts the dog on his head on his lap and oh, essentially, like, lets yeah. the dog die on his lap. And I'm, like, I'm, like, tearing up. And I'm, like, crying. I'm, like, oh, my God, oh, why? I was just absolutely beside myself. It's been a long time since I've seen it. And I was, like, oh, God. So, yeah. So the, what's really important here to talk about is yeah so drew is deeply connected to his best friend forever zoe zowie sorry it's an odd dog name so he is so deeply connected to zowie the dog he keeps him company his stepdad is a dink his mother is not really seeing or not dealing with the fact that his stepfather is abusive emotionally and physically so he has this dog as your best friend he's also bullied that's why him and jeff become fast friends you know, he's an overweight kid. He doesn't have any friends. He has this dog who's not really well trained, but they're best friends, you know, and that's just devastating to see. And you see Ellie also deeply bonded to her church and they're best friends forever. They sleep together every night. That moment in Pet Cemetery 1 where I think it's either the mom or the dad, Rachel or Lewis, they like tuck them yeah, in. The yeah. cat's already in the goddamn blankets and they tuck them in together and the cat's laying on his side. I'm like, that was me as a kid with my cat, Bucky. We went to bed together every night and we held hands. And I would not have been ready for my Bucky to be dead. It was really upsetting when she did die. That was a long time ago. But those kids are so deeply bonded to those pets and it's awful when they die but they are the catalyst to the rest of this because of course ellie would want her cat back and of course drew wants his dog back he's important in his life both of them are really important in his life and zowie is what i think keeps drew happy in that unfortunate family scenario the glue you know that's keeping him from, you know, running away. He asked Jeff in that movie, he's like, you ever think about running away? Like, he's so deeply unhappy. And Zowie is the reason why he is at least moderately content. Then you have Jeff, who adopts one of those abandoned kittens. You know, the death of his mother was huge, and the little kitten's bringing him comfort, support, you know, companionship, which pet, you know, people can get from pets to help heal from grief or any kind of scenario in in their lives. And Zowie kills those kittens, which is awful. Uh, 
so upsetting. But then also those little girls see it. So there's those girls probably experiencing a very traumatizing death for the first time in their lives. I wonder what happens to them. <laughs> Afterwards. Yeah. Why they bring back Gus. I don't, maybe it's just, a, a, you know, them feeling guilty. It's really not, it's not sensible. There's a lot of nonsensible things that that happen. He comes back kind of rapey and goofy yeah, and like, weird. But, you know, Drew mentions too, like, he's like, now we kind of have a normal life. Because, you know, Gus is actually kind of, with regards to Drew, he actually is acting much better. Maybe it's because he was such a terrible person going in. He comes out and he's a little bit better. But now he's like, oh, we kind of have a normal life. And this kind of gives him a taste of what a normal life could be, obviously in a very twisted way. But he kind of has a semblance of, you know a good life which is you know it's too bad that it had to kind of go that way and and that's what's like the weird yeah about the weird thing about that film is just watching because that's where i feel like the whole idea the concept of the pet cemetery starts falling apart because i understood it that if someone buried their own in the mcmac burial ground they kind of had a sense of control over that or like the the dead person kind of would show kind of some sense of respect in the way and that and, yeah. at, and at first, like, when I saw Gus come back and he was, like, being super nice to Drew and very protective of him, like, oh, because he brought him back to life, there's that sense of connection. They have mm-hmm. a connection now. Mm-hmm. But, yeah. But then I was like, well, wait a second. When they're dead, they're they're just kind of, like, zombie-like and they're... Yeah. And, and, but Gus is acting more, like, you know, goofy and silly and, yeah, very rapey. Um, I was with Amanda in that one scene. But also, yeah. too, like, I didn't understand. Why bring the bully back? I didn't get that. Oh, God. Yeah, it goes off the rails. Like, why would you... I was like, is Gus trying to bring, like, these people back from the dead to make, like, some kind of undead army? Like, I don't know why. Was it just for fun? I... At one point, I had in my head, I'm like, okay, he's gonna bring... He brings the bully back. I'm like, there's gotta be some kind of connection between Gus and the bully. Maybe, maybe bully... The bully, I don't know the kid's name, is, like... Gus's illegitimate child that he had with Renee because he wants to bring the actress mother back because he says like I want to fuck her type thing but I was like oh maybe like there was like some kind of history there I'm like that would have made it really interesting but no he just was bringing people back to life that's all he was doing <laughs> which did not make yeah. any sense at all no and so no that that bringing that no that was not a needed thing to to happen unfortunately um one in, an interesting thing that i found you know talking about you know different types of deaths and how people deal with it um and handle it and how they try to move on is so chase is the dad so he kills gus or kills gus the zombie gus um but he didn't know he was zombie gus he was mad that he dug up his ex-wife which i could see again feeling like these um, irrational feelings but he doesn't know he just easily very easily kills him i was like that's odd that there is no hesitation on your part you're mad and also why didn't you comment on the weird baker family house (laughs) (laughs) yeah right gus's house turned into some kind of crazy shit yeah like uh, there's that one that's not surprising you Yeah, and, like, at that one point when he walks into the house and you see the inverted cross, I was like, whoa, what is happening? Like, are There's you... A... <laughs> there are a 
all demon worshippers now in this house? Like, what is happening? Oh, I don't know. Which, this is what I mean. Like, the film, you said, like, it starts off really strong and just kind of goes off the rails. And which is sad because there's some really kind of good, interesting points, especially around the whole, like, Gus is an abusive stepfather towards Drew and Amanda just turns a blind eye to it or she doesn't want to address it or deal with it. So there's a, this interesting dichotomy of how women deal with um, abusers or how they try to, you know, when... Um, Zowie comes back and is shot and they're like oh Zowie was never really dead and then that's when Chase is introduced to Zowie and they're like oh well how did this happen he's like oh some just trigger happy moron and you see like the look between Amanda and Drew and they're protecting the abuser and I'm just like oh well this is interesting than going into this whole thing of how we protect people who hurt us and abuse us and I was like but then it just goes completely off the rails and I'm like okay this is just crazy (laughs) (laughs) I know (laughs) So at one point, Drew says that, you know, he wishes that his stepdad was dead. And we know that he gets his wish, you know, in kind of more ways than one. You know, young Jeff is surrounded by death and abnormal ways or abnormal ways to to deal with grief. You're right. It was interesting in the, the first movie, you have an adult acting irrationally, which so it makes more sense that there's children acting more irrationally. Um... I don't think Jeff, you know, Jeff eventually wants to do this as well, but yeah, nobody's dealing with their grief properly in this movie for sure. I felt like I could understand the irrationality in the first one, but the second one, a lot of it just doesn't make actual human sense. (laughs) I mean, with Jeff and his mom, even though we don't see a lot of the relationship, I think that for him, it makes sense because he sees these people around him doing like the dog Gus, he's like, I want a sense of my normal life again. And his mother is, it's his mom, you know, and he wants to get comfort from her. Of course. Um, so Gus helps everyone else everyone <laughs> out and digs her up uh, and she comes back, you know, and um, the, the ending, it gets kind of wacky, but you have his mom while she's burning in the house Dad is better. Dad is better. But it's a totally different context to what Jed was saying in the first one. Dad is better being like, we should all be dead. So I want you to come and die with me because this is better. Whereas Judd was saying that things should remain dead. You know, sometimes dead, dead is better. Uh, Drew also has this moment. There's, there's like some really poignant, sad moments in this movie and I wish that it wasn't so kind of kooky at some points um especially with the teenagers and Drew and that family dynamic like you said so you know Jeff and him have this really sweet wonderful little friendship and Drew says to him like about bringing people back from the dead it's like if you even had one in a million chance would you do it And Jeff's like, "Mm, I'm not into this. He was never into it, you know, but like, holy fuck, if I had a chance to bring Squishy back from the dead, I totally would have. You know what I mean? Like, I totally would have. I don't know if I'd think that about a human, but I definitely would have, you know. And coming back to the the element uh, of grief and everything, Drew, again, I made a lot of points here, a lot of quotes. I just made notes of it because there's a lot of nice, poignant moments. Uh, Drew says, I've never had someone die before. I guess you get over it eventually. That's after his dog died. And he's so brokenhearted. And Jeff's like, no, you never get over it. You know? And as we know, 
everyone's going to die and we don't actually necessarily get over it. We just, our grief transforms into something else that we can accept. And then we do just kind of eventually feel better and move on. So I think that overall Pet Cemetery 2 doesn't have as much to say. There's really great moments that make it less of a cohesive kind of story, but I still liked it, but I think it definitely could have, you know, been a little bit better. Yeah, I completely 100% agree. It definitely could have really been better. And like I said, watching it through, I was just like, what is with the animal death? Like, even then, like, the skinning of the rabbits, I was like, this is super mm. upsetting. Like, they just went too far. And which, Whereas, like, in Pet Cemetery 1, like, obviously, you know, the death of Church was just a catalyst. But in Pet Cemetery 2, I'm just like, nah, this is not necessary. Not necessary. So, fairly decent film. Obviously, probably, you know, I, I find it interesting because I know there's some people who really like this film. They really enjoy Pet Cemetery too. And I'm sorry, I may get flamed from other people on the on the interweaves. I did not care much for it. Probably will not watch it again. But I am open to people conversing with me to try and change my mind about that. So, yeah. I don't think anybody needs to try to change your mind. You don't <laughs> like it, you don't like it. It's understandable why you don't. It's it could be understanding, you know, understandable why somebody would. I still had fun with it. I think there's some good elements to it, but uh, it's just like it's so wacky. <laughs> it's such a wacky film. Yeah. So, uh, so interesting enough, we talked about these two films, and they're both, uh, you know, especially Pet Cemetery One, kind of canon in the horror genre. But they're in interesting films and in addressing how horror, the genre itself, how it can help people deal with death and grief. And Kelly and I wanted to touch briefly about this um, because this is just another element in how people can help with their own recovery. So John Kenneth Muir, we love him, obviously. We have multiple books by him. He's great. He's a great resource. So horror films in the 1980s. So horror overall, we know, breaks so many social taboos, like the death of a child, it necrophilia, cannibalism, so many aspects. And in this movie, it's death of a child because you don't see that that intensely in a lot of movies. But Pet Cemetery shows what many films do not, which is the inevitable and unacceptability of death. Death is drenched in horror films. There's, it's, it's just, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> Drenched is a really great word for it. So it's just like there's so much death. Like that's that's what it is, right? But they rarely broach the subject of the fear of death like Pet Cemetery does. So I think it's just a unique, a unique film. So fictitious fears, so in films and novels and whatnot, can soothe real life fears. I read this article um, and the author had heard his his father being shot and killed and his mother threatened while him and his sister hid and then they escaped thankfully and for him he said that horror movies provided not a, not only an example for actions but an outlet for empathy a chance to see characters contend with a kind of fear that my own peers could not fathom so he could see his own experience you know on the screen and see how people you know deal with it because people in his life could not even comprehend like i couldn't relate to that whatsoever so we choose to watch these movies. We can turn them off. We can walk away if needed, but we can't do that in real life. It's a controlled set of fear, right? And sometimes we're drawn to things that scare us in order to master our fears, right? Um, 
Uh, bringing up the Duke ending as a reference of, of grief and relating to real life horrors and grief is... So if you haven't seen the end, ending of the Babadook, you probably should just watch it anyways. But, you know, our grief and us mourning doesn't necessarily always go away. Like I said, it transforms and you kind of have to feed it every once in a while to help you heal and move on with life. And sometimes for some people, uh, horror movies can help with that. I also read this really great article. It was written by... His name is Stephen Scheel, who's a screenwriter and a director. His first movie was actually Mom and Dad. It's that Selma Blair and Nicolas Cage one, which I sadly haven't seen. So he was saying that, you know, horror asks questions about the brutality of life, where it comes from, where it's leading. It shows us images that describe that brutality and it's often and even graphic or repulsive, but it allows us to confront it in a space where we can use our imagination and our emotions to deal with it. Uh, the violence that we feel all around us in the world is passed through a filter and then reflected back to us in a way that can help us process it. Like our world is in fucking shambles in so many different ways, right? So if we can watch things in a controlled way, then maybe we can help us, you know, process and face our our lives and, you know, experiencing everything that we have to on a day-to-day basis, So for this gentleman, he said, horror for me has been a way to explore the deep and fundamental scars left by the violence of death. And all death, whether sudden or expected, is violent, at least from the point of view of those left behind. It's an instant, irrevocable amputation. Death is transformative. For those left behind, the experience of grief and loss opens up another world. It's a world where the violence of death is not just an ever-present possibility. It's an inevitability. And there's no telling where or when it might strike. It's unmindful, remorseless. It's every unkillable Michael Myers or Jason Voorhees. There is always a sequel. The landscape of grief is one that is haunted by the specter. It's always lurking, ready to strike. So watching horror movies, you know, they can be a way of emotionally and psychologically engaging with our innermost fears and our huge, the biggest, you know, collective fear for humans is that fear of death. So it's not just a a cathartic experience, but it makes us, you know, question uh, our own humanity. We see death and violence on the screen. We can see the frailty of the human body, how it's mutated, dismembered, diseased, and it just, every, you know, every time we watch, it makes us question, like, what happens when we die? Because it's going to happen to, to all of us. Yeah. So the finality of death is what's used in horror to keep the audience in the film's grip. And in the past, horror was treated, like, horror would treat death as, you know, the death of friends and family, which were typically ha- happening off screen, but using as, like, the death of these individuals as a motivation for the protagonists to find a way to prevent their own demise. And we see that in most prominently in slasher films, so that the death of the people close to them is what drives them to survive. <laughs> but we see that with death and with grief and with dealing with loss, they're, they're, they're very inherently, as Kelly's expressing, very important to the genre and how we approach the genre and how we can kind of heal through seeing these images on screen and kind of relating to these moments. Obviously, not all of us can relate to running away from a serial killer, but we can relate to if someone 
suddenly dies or there's like a tragic accident or a suicide um and we see that and we see all those elements of various types of death and, and all these different horror films like we we broach the topic of how death comes about in life whether it's accidental whether it's a life taken too soon whether it's someone taking their own life whether it's a horrible you know f disease that's slowly eating away at them in the past, uh, you know, some really prominent uh, books, like a book like a book like Frankenstein, really tells the tale of how the impact of emotional and physical scars um, that come upon an individual when it comes to terms of loss, and how we don't really want to lose that individual, and how we want to try and bring them back to life again, i.e., Pet Cemetery. Um, but I wanted to kind of approach how some directors, some horror directors, are very known for using the topic of death as a prominent subject, and I'm bringing up the film Phantasm. Um, Don Coscarelli does like a five-part series that deals with the nature and death and how we deal with such a profound loss and how we go through it. And as I, in my old podcast, The Dark Spectrum, I did a whole analysis about the whole uh, Phantasm series and how young uh, young men and women deal with death and seeing that change and dealing with loss. And then also another interesting film he does was uh, Bubba Hotep with Bruce Campbell talking about the whole emotional core of dwindling in dwindling mortality. So that fear of dying and uh, when we're becoming older and older and aging. So horror really does is just another genre another way in which people can approach death, understand it, kind of have some thoughts about it. And I feel like for myself being more involved in the horror genre and being and, and kind of exposing myself a bit more to these things that happen in films to the types of deaths that happen to the the moments of fear and loss like i feel like i can identify not identify more with it but be able to understand it and accept it more and, and that's kind of where i'm where i see horror helping people dealing with death and grief totally i mean we and i think it allows us to again, just face so many fears and challenges in our day-to-day -day life. We love watching these movies where we're like, don't open the door. There's weird sounds Ugh. behind it. Don't go in the basement. Never fucking go in the basement. Go in the like, basement. Come on. But If someone's been gone a long time, yeah. they're gone. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> they're just gone. Her. I'm like, sorry, Jess, if you've gone to the bathroom and you haven't come back for like 30 minutes, I'm like, no, she's dead. It's fine. <laughs> I'm not going to search for you. Thank you. Sorry. I would expect you don't. <laughs> you know, but we have to know what's beyond the door. We have to know what's going in the basement. Because if we don't know, then we get anxiety and we just remain fearful. But if we open that door, we go into the basement, we can confront whatever it is. And then you just face the consequences afterwards, right? If you die, you die. But at least you faced your fears or it, whatever, you know, metaphor you want to add to that into your own life, but you have to face your fears or you're just going to live a sheltered, fearful life forever. And I think actually my realization for this uh, episode is that horror is actually quite quite creative and absolutely wonderful for, for people to, to be able to do that in their own lives. Yeah, I completely 100% agree. I think in terms of watching these two films and watching how people treat death, especially watching Lewis and Rachel in the begin in the first film and how they keep trying to introduce death to Ellie and talk about it and they just really want to protect her and shelter her from it. And at the same time too, you're like, no, you're doing more harm than good. She needs to understand that death is a part of life and that when it happens, how to deal with the grief and how to move through it. So it's in a way, it's like, I understand like, you know, by putting 
Christian church in the Micmac burial ground. It was the catalyst of the movie, but at the end of the day, you're like, nope, you should have told her that her cat is dead, and this is a fact of life, and this happens, and how to help and help bring her move through that, um, through that grief, because in a way, you become like a better and a stronger individual in sense of being able to handle your grief and handle mourning and being able to be able to be support for other people. So yes. And I think it was interesting too, is that people really draw themselves to the horror genre because of like you said, that fear of anxiety of death. And we always want to know what's on the other side. And that is like a huge study within itself. And there are groups and organizations that that's what all they want to focus on is what is beyond death and what, what happens after death. And that we just, we just don't know. And I think, you know, we should just accept it and just enjoy life as it is now. And when it does happen, it happens. And we, you know, wish all the best to the people who I leave later on in life. <laughs> please grieve well. <laughs> <laughs> do not bury me in a McMack barrel ground, please. I do not want please. to come back to life. <laughs> if I am dead, leave me be dead. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes dead is better. <laughs> oh, boy. That ends our episode of the exploration of death and grief and horror through the lens of Mary Lambert's Pet Cemetery 1 and 2. We have had a great Women in Horror Month, and we hope you have too. We revisited some of our favorite uh, podcast episodes, blog posts, reviews, along with celebrating our own favorite women of ho- women in horror. We want to thank Dance of the Dead for our intro-outro music, Robeast, and all of you listeners. We want to remind you to follow us on our website, spinstersofhorror.com, Facebook, Spinsters of Horror, Twitter, at Horror Spinsters. We also are on Instagram at Spinsters of Horror, as well as please rate and review us on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and iTunes, and any other podcasting app you listen to. We really would like that you guys to see that. We really like to see the feedback and really would help us get higher up in the rankings of the list. And we also want to remind you that we now have merch. So please visit Tee Public to purchase one of our t-shirts. And we also are selling our stickers in our, our shop on our website. And next month, we are excited to explore the concepts of infectious evil and the destruction of the world in John Carpenter's Prince of Darkness and In the Mouth of Madness. So until then, remember, the future of fear is female. 